Hey everyone, welcome to Cloud Masters, a no-fluff cloud podcast, giving you tangible tips for navigating the cloud. I'm your host, Matan Bordeaux, joined by my co-host, Sam Clark, and this is our second episode in a row for the data engineers out there. We're going to be exploring the impact that Gen AI will have on data engineering. Today, we're joined by Sean Knapp, CEO at Ascend.io, and Sasha Heyer, hope I'm saying that right. He's a senior ML specialist here at Do It. Um, Sean, why don't we kick this off by giving some context around, you know, what does Ascend do? Why are we having you here to talk about Gen AI and data engineering? And then uh, we'll jump off from there. Cool. Yeah. Um, Ascend.io is a, a platform for automation of data engineering pipelines. Uh, in many ways, think of we do for data pipelines what Kubernetes does for container orchestration. We're a highly declarative, heavily automated approach to how you architect, design, and, and deploy data pipelines, where we can push a lot more of the classic developer and maintenance burden to automation. And so obviously, very excited as we move through those layers of automation to AI, uh, as I think it's a pretty exciting domain. And Sasha, you yourself, you're kind of like the the resident uh, Gen AI expert. You've written a lot about it. You've appeared on podcasts. I think it was uh, Stack Overflow's podcast. You talked about hallucinations. Um, are you are you working with lots of with with some of our customers on Gen AI implementations already? Anything in the data engineering space? Yeah, so the, the year 2003 was the year where the I think the, the public perception of AI has substantially changed, and yeah, almost all of our companies now do at least something with generative AI or get get started because yeah, it changed how how they perceive AI. That got the, the the level for for getting into AI got got much lower with generative AI. And to start, maybe Sean, you met recently with a bunch of data engineering leaders to talk about the impact of Gen AI on their work. Um, what does the future look like? What is the you know yeah. short term? What 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 you know? How can this be implemented long term? What does this look like? What can it disrupt? What were some of the takeaways out of that uh, that meeting that you had, meeting of the minds that you had with them? Yeah, I think the the first takeaway is there's not yet consensus as far as the the impact and timeline for impact. There's like massive spectrum of, hey, JDI is literally going to be able to to automate everything we do to mm, pretty skeptical and we'll see how it plays out. So I, I think like in all classic early innings in, in a pretty you know, pronounced hype cycle where there's a lot of, of substantial benefit too, there's just a, a high variability as to what people were, were looking at. So I think that's the first one, um, <clears throat> which is great. We'll have some people who are charging ahead and really, you know, I think exploring new space and, and demonstrating the amazing capabilities. And, and then we'll, we'll have a couple others sitting back and waiting and seeing. So I think that, that was one. Um, the second probably big one that, that probably is, is really relevant is there was pretty uniform alignment around these incremental steps for, for Gen AI in data engineering. And in particular, how do we use Gen AI to, to simply offload the, the more rote manual tasks that engineering teams have to do? You know, the, the classic uh, joke that I always have is, look, like nobody likes to test or document their code. So that's that should be like the very first thing that we all go after is we use Gen AI for the basic pieces. We can get fancier and fancier. I think there's a lot of really amazing things we can do around helping this sort of citizen movement. You know, we talked uh, talked about citizen data scientists in the past, and they were gonna get more citizen data engineers. 
has moved from the analytics engineering realm into the data engineering realm. I think Gen AI can help with that as well. But I think we'll, we'll see these incremental steps play out in fast pace, but I, I think we'll, we'll move pretty systematically through those. Can you, can you actually explain to me what is a citizen data engineer? So I'm not, well, yeah, I'm not too so, sure. Well, I don't think we have them yet, but I'd really love to see yeah. them. Uh, and I think I, I predict that, that we're en route to doing that. And, and you know, the, the, the term around citizen data scientists was coined a, a while back as we started to see some you know, really interesting companies like Data Robot come in and, and democratize greater access to data science capabilities. I think we're going to see the same thing in data engineering. We've already seen the introduction of the analytics engineer, really borne out from the, let's call it the DBT era, uh, where we can make more uh, code-based, SQL-based data pipelines and then EOT realm ha has brought people closer to the data engineering realm. I don't think all the way into true data engineering where we have to deal with incrementality of data and smart partitioning and all the other fancy stuff. I think we're getting closer and closer. And that's where I do think that there will be this new citizen data engineer, which we may not end up branding at that. It may be the, the further advancement of the analytics engineer. But I think that those two realms have the ability to very much combine with the assistance and, and the, the empowerment we get from Gen AI. So could, um, this is an example, marketing person as a citizen data engineer can say, hey, I'd like to take the Salesforce data I have and merge it with these other sources, with the Google, Google ads, um, LinkedIn ads, other sources, maybe they use HubSpot as well. Is that kind of like what a future citizen data engineer might look like? I, I think it, it's possible that would be on the, the fringe, I would say. What what the what we're seeing is the, the sort of classic data engineering realm of really large volumes of data. You have uh, you know, complex pipelines where you have to do uh, incremental data propagation and that sort of partitioning. That part still tends to sit very much in the, the depth of the, the engineering organization. And the analytics engineering team tends to get already the more of the uh, marketing data, the ads data, but not necessarily a lot of the system data, not necessarily a lot of the the, the product data itself. So I think the the, the advantage we're going to start to see is those analytics engineering uh, users and engineers who tend to have more of a, a SQL skill set are going to be able to to work their way upstream and tap into all the way the, the broader data sets and the more originating uh, data sets and even bridge into the realm of Python transformations, which I, I do think are necessary for a number of, of different workloads, uh, as well as the more sophisticated optimizations you can do around data pipelines, which today I think the analytics realm were just scratching the surface of. Now I wonder, um, like for me, I think what ChatGPT was released to the public in what, November? of last year, 2022, something like that. It took me about 10 months, nine months to start adopting it and using it for my own work. Um, and so I wonder whether it's for the citizen data engineer of the future or for data engineers today, uh, people already data engineers, is there, as far as adoption, like, is that also do you see that as a hurdle? Is our, our teams are are you seeing it internally as a hurdle? The, with the data leader, with the data engineering leaders you talk to today, um, are they seeing that as a hurdle in terms of just 
you know, getting them to adopt, getting them to use it and then getting them interested in using it, you know, as part of their work. Cause it, for me, my own trans, my own, it kind of like slowly, slowly built up to now it's, it's like doing those tasks that I don't really like doing myself, allowing me to be more creative and, uh, you know, remove writer's block, things like that. Totally. Um, I think it, th there's going to be a, a sort of gradual uh, process for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I remember back when, uh, you know, ChatGPT uh, was released too, and you're in the three, five era. And, you know, at, at that point in time, it, it was to the point where you could see the potential and you're like, ah, this thing's pretty cool, but it's still like pretty awkward too at the same time. Uh, and then GPT-4 came out and you're like, holy shit, like, I get it. Like, all right, now it's happening. Um, and and it's not perfect yet, but we'll keep seeing it progress. And, and you know, there's now multiple data points and we can plot the traje trajectory. So I think the same thing is going to happen in the data engineering world. <clears throat> you know, for example, uh, everybody at Ascend already has Copilot or GitHub Copilot or Copilot X installed into their environments. Uh, we already have you know, pretty uniformly adopted Gen AI in our day-to-day -day operations. Um, I mean, I even have literally quick commands where I can just like forward slash X on a command and I actually have all that programmed into uh, ChatGPT, uh, which is really uh, fun. You can program different props in this way. Um, but when it comes to data engineering itself, I, I think we're going to, see folks just start to, to go along the path of, hey, can it document for me? Can it suggest tests for me, right? Every time it, it, every time you write a SQL-based transform, you are making assumptions about the data that is coming in. You know, you're making assumptions around non-null values or that is, you know, the percentage column is literally between zero and one uh, or zero and a hundred. Uh, and so using Gen AI to do things like suggest data quality checks in line uh, as part of your pipeline runs. Um, the other area where we are seeing a lot of folks, and I think this is a really cool space, is in migration. We see in the data realm, so many companies have such painful, bespoke old platforms that they would love to migrate, but they're like those, you know, house of cards that you're like, just nobody sneezed near this thing. And we really hope it survives until it's the next guy's problem. And you see this all over the place. So I think there's a ton of opportunity to take these classic uh, data pipelines that are built, these classic ETL systems that were built on legacy technologies and accelerate the, the migration to modern platforms, uh, which I think is awesome because nobody wants to migrate systems. Like that's painful, but if you can use Gen AI to really help you do that and get into a better world, um, but you'll find most teams are really bullish on that. I I think about just uh, I was playing Jenga earlier, and I I just think of that when you describe those old antiquated systems, like one wrong one wrong block pull, then you're screwed. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so you're just hoping it's you know you're on vacation when somebody else does it, and then they got to go go deal with the pager and the on call and so on. I guess I mean the, this sort of a system, this sort of a um. Uh, an ability to describe code or to comment on code and to help with the migrations and that sort of stuff. We're, we're never going to be able to get rid of the people because we can't get that Gen AI 
um, model inside a developer's head to figure out not what he's doing, but why he did it, right? He or she should say, um, because obviously development is an art at some point and, uh, there are very creative ways to get around any problem. Um, sometimes, you know, let's give the, the developers here the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes those development ideas are not so clever. Um, you know, so we'd love to know what the hell were they thinking, right? Yeah, and, and imagine the like if you could spend all of your intellectual horsepower on on generating the, the ideas and the and, and then you know contributing why you wanted to do that. You know, it, it's the if we think super philosophically, and this applies not just to data engineering, but I think software engineering, marketing, vast majority of, of you know frankly white collar jobs is we basically do the same cycle in our job like all day long, which is we ideate, we we create, and then we we refine and, and curate. Most of the, the the work that we do in the middle of create, I, I would contend is the lowest clock speed stuff we do. Because we're, we're limited by the laws of physics. How fast our mouths can move, how fast our hands can type, but our brains are working way faster. You're trying to get the stuff on digital paper, so to speak. And, and that the, the promise I, I think of Gen AI, especially in the current era is how do we truncate down that timeline so we can go faster we can spend more of our, our our mental cycles on the ideation and the refinement pieces which is the why we're doing what we're doing and what we want to do to to begin with uh and the the rest of it i mean if we, it, I, I would love it if i could take like that middle portion and cram that down to two percent of my day I, I would be so well one i'd be so amazingly productive and two that would make me so amazingly happy uh as a result and so that's where I see the, the, the benefit today. I, I mean, it sounds amazing. I don't know about um, a, an AI brain interface, but um, I've seen the the so-called AI built into my Roomba and it, it can't navigate my floor. So there's no way someone's getting inside my head with these things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I literally had to turn my Roomba off right before the um, the, the podcast. It's like banging against my, my office door so I'm trying to get in. Yeah, there's there's some fun out there about AI taking over the world. I don't think we're anywhere near that at this stage. Sasha, yeah. um, you you talked a lot about hallucinations with Gen AI LLM model or large language models. Um, I'm wondering if you've seen it already, or what would that look like in the world of data engineering? You know, given the context of like what Sean was talking about, how 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 it's already being used today in the world of data engineering for testing and what and whatnot. And you know what do data? What should data engineers need to be aware of? Or maybe, maybe, maybe you're just thinking out loud. But um, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. Maybe I even just start off in case someone's not aware. What are hallucinations? Yeah, so hallucinations are if the if your large language model like like Palm or ChatGPT or GPT is making up stuff which is actually factually not true. That's that's hallucination. So getting basically wrong information out of the model. Um, this is more, more or less um, painful depending on your use case. And yeah, some, some ways to circumvent this is by using, um, by giving the model more information, not only the model, the data the model was trained on, but also give, giving him some, some context on the data you're operating on. So if, if, you, if you integrate your data, your company data into your large language model, um, you, or if you, if you work on data which the model wasn't trained on, you need to somehow give the model this information. Otherwise, it will not be able to answer the right or correct answers. And this is sometimes, depending on use case, quite a lot of data. And getting this data right into your large language models, um, for, for that you need proper proper data pipelines. So, for example, if you do something like um, 
uh, work. So retrieval, augmented generation, uh, enriching the context of the model. Um, I think this is this is where we see a major shift in how you are processing your data. So we went from this previously be, before the rise of large language models. We we did a lot of um, data collection. We collect a lot of data to train the models, and now we are switching basically from from getting training data. We go directly into prompt engineering, and that's that's the biggest shift I see. So we have a massive massively decreased demand on playable data sets replacing some of the traditional data pre-processing methods with, with feature, engineer, uh, feature engineering with large language models, like, like Sean said. And we're also shifting into um, real-time data ingestions to um, avoid those hallucinations. Are, are, are people already using it today to annotate data as well? Yes, absolutely. There, just a few days ago, I saw um, a nice benchmark, a nice research paper where someone try, compared um, already labeled data sets and they used large language models to label them again. And it is com some comparison and they almost had the, the same or sometimes even better results than the manual labeled data sets. So this is working really well for a lot of types of data. Obviously, there are more specialized data sets where you still need hand labeled data, but um, it's already a good starting point. We're not talking about the uh, Silicon Valley episode with hot dog, not hot dog, right? It's it's a little bit more advanced than that. But if I just look at, I, I I'm I'm waiting for I'm waiting for approval to get Chat GPT four, and I've already heard it's like, I don't know, don't 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 take me literally, Sasha, but I heard it's like a million times better than three point five. Um, and just thinking about how like we're not even a year in, how much, how fast, what is it? What is the term? AI computation. That's it's not like it's not Moore's law computation. It's AI computation. How much is just advanced in in less than a year? Um, what was the? I, I remember a statistic being brought up, Sean, on the when you were talking about this with with Peter. Yeah, they they talk about uh, the double life. Uh, basically, what's the period of time that it takes for the computational power to roughly double? And you know we're all familiar with Moore's law, but the amazing part of this with um, AI computational power, it, it is currently doubling and has been actually for about the last decade, uh, doubling every 3.4 months. So if we think about that, and you you expand that out to two years, so that's seven doubling cycles for the the math nerds in the room. That's 128. Technically, it works out to be about 133x. Uh, of compu increasing computational power just over the course of two years. They think of like how fast this is going to change on us. I mean, just think of, you know, if we follow Moore's law and you, you try and track that same thing, we're, we're looking at, you know, basically when, you know, the shortly after the iPhone was released, as far as like that rate of change, and, and now take that and compress it into the next two years. So maybe what, in, in a year, Sam's Roomba will stop, uh, Will actually recognize all of, all Maybe. of his walls and, and whatnot, but it's. Is I mean, it that's possible. The the idea of the Roomba is is to me, I think one of the one of the interesting things about Gen AI at the minute. Everybody that I've spoken to, um, whether it's a customer or, or a partner or whatever, everybody's trying to figure out how to add Gen AI to their product, and a Roomba might be a bad example, might be a good example, um, but. Um, the 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 part of me that can't I'm I'm not so creative and I'm not I'm struggling to get past I can see Gen AI being great for writing tools right so if I'm trying to compose a an email or a presentation or a document whatever uh, you know give me a give me a prompt like you said Matan get past the writer's block um, I've seen obviously the demonstrations of image generation you know put a uh, put a Norse god on a unicorn or whatever and and make a pretty picture from that but 
wh- where else are we going with with Genai? What are, what are the areas that you're seeing as as the the hot things customers are trying to work on? Yeah, I, I see a lot of um, use cases um, where you operate um, or where you need to summarize um, documents. This could be either a telephone conference or you have some notes, companies doing notes of employees or for the yearly review and you want to have some summarization or some some key key uh, takeaways from, from those notes. This is quite commonly used, but... The, there are basically no limitations, but everything which which you're doing in your company, which is currently um, somehow taking your time, you could think of automating. Maybe this could be a, a great way to start, but not necessarily everything needs to be automated. So it needs to be needs to be have a good use case, and then you can think of automating it. So Sam, if you if you have something which you are doing every day and it's wasting a lot of time of you, then just give it a try and try to automate it. I don't want to say wasting time. I mean, it's mostly customer-facing work, so it's definitely not wasting. But, but definitely, I mean, I, I've seen similar to what you say in the summarizing and and, and things like sentiment analysis. Um, I've seen some cool ideas there where we can, um, you know, handing over a support ticket from one engineer to another and and getting a quick summation of where we're at, what we're doing, before you then go through the full details and look at every trace route or whatever was was provided. Um, I can certainly see that. I'd, I'd really like it to get to the next level where it can also look at the log file and tell me where the problem is. Um, but, you know, I think we're a little way off that without enough data sets. I think we're getting closer to it. it you know, we've been doing a lot of work with um, GPT-4 uh, models. Um, I think that it is, you know, significantly more advanced than, than what we've seen in the, you know, at least in the, the data engineering realm and, and data pipelines in particular. You know, oftentimes it, you see in the data pipeline, you start with a bunch of source data, and then you create a bunch of different cascading transforms. Some are materialized, some are not. And then you know, we see across our customers, you end up with these tens of thousands of different transformations, all booked across these DAGs, like interwoven. And when you start to think of the, the power of Gen AI is, well, one, what happens when somebody has a new thing they want, like a new question, if you could actually not only vocalize that, but then start to use Gen AI that was framed on all the other data sets and all the other code and, and logic. Would it actually then hook into the right data pipeline at the right stage of that transformation? So you're not creating a whole new pipeline that's replicating all of the same workload. Like when we think about it from a, a sheer ability to optimize all of this complex data movement through a, a business uh, is pretty compelling. I, you can get data pipelines that actually you know burn less money overall and the team can do it more safely as well and so i think there's a lot of, of potential there and this is i think part of the the capability we see where the the skill sets can shift a lot you can get the you know the the uh, data analyst can become an analytics engineer the analytics engineer can do data engineering because we can use gen ai to actually help them move further upstream in that data life cycle I mean, this is very low tech compared to everything that you, every, all the use cases you just threw out there. But I myself, I had to, you know, when you click on an image in a blog post and it pops up, but doesn't open in a new window. Apparently it's called Foobox or something or light, like a light box. I, on a Sunday, because in Israel we work on Sundays, I had to, I wanted to publish a blog post, but our web developer who, who would help me write the code or who would help me figure out why it's not working... He's obviously not working. So I had ChatGPT just, I asked, I asked it, 
you know, what's wrong with this code? And it spotted the code, it spotted the problem. It was using the wrong kind of comma, I guess, or the, or the wrong quotations. And, um, so it's kind of there with the, with, with the, at least HTML it helped me out. I use it. I use that now. I don't have to rely on this web developer to help write the code. Um, but you mentioned, um, I remember you mentioning in your conversations with Paul, um, product marketing at, at Ascend, uh, Around the context of this AI computation doubling every three or so months, you mentioned, I, th I think it was around this context, you mentioned kind of hyper-verticalized focuses in Gen AI, smoothing this out. Could you explain what that, I, I wasn't sure what that meant, but also like in the context of data engineering, what does that look like? Yeah, like right now, if we look at it, the, the capabilities are, are just really raw. Like, you know, it's a, hey, you get Bard and, you know, a, a couple of other offerings that like OpenAI's uh, APIs, but we're not seeing purpose-built AI offerings yet. Uh, well, and, and I think it, it's coming fast. You know, we're seeing most SaaS products are starting to integrate it. You know, all the SaaS products we use on a, on a daily basis now at least are, you know, they have something in there, whether or not it, it's, you know, helpful yet. I think it's to varied degrees of success, but it will get there regardless. Uh, and so I think that's where the initial excitement of Gen AI is going to solve all of these, these sort of issues will go into a, ah, uh, you're going to need your verticalized platform provider is probably going to solve a lot of the common patterns for you. So for in the Ascend realm, us integrating Gen AI into our product, so we can help you better document, test. Uh, monitor your pipelines rather than you having to, you know, hook into OpenAI APIs and implement all that yourself. Like, these are all highly repeatable patterns. So I think that there's a, a material burden and responsibility, not burden, I should say responsibility put on SaaS providers for your product to integrate Gen AI so people can take advantage of those capabilities. And then I think the the more bespoke business specific applications of Gen AI when as a business, you're creating your own product. Like uh, as uh, Sacha was talking about labeling uh, your own uh, content and sentiment of data coming in from your users, for example, that would be a great example of where you won't get as verticalized of, of Gen AI solutions. And that's where you should put your intellectual horsepower internally to, to make sure that, that you can really take advantage of Gen AI. I see the same thing kind of happening, or it's been discussed, like the industry clouds, SAP and Oracle, building cloud, building industry-specific solutions for like healthcare, and uh, and other industries that maybe are slower to adopt the cloud to make it more, because apparently, because uh, you know, I think the assumption in the beginning was that let's just give them this empty canvas and let them build whatever they want to build, but ha but having something that's already pur that's purpose-built, as you said. Um, actually increases the adoption and you see like companies like Oracle that are, are kind of having a resurgence in SAP as well um, and getting these healthcare providers and, and these more slower to adopt industries to, to use their products. Yeah, absolutely. And because I think they're, they're already quite dominant for, for these industries in the, the non-cloud realm, if you will. Uh, and I think then helping to facilitate and, and that migration into the, the modern era these companies are, are, are very well positioned to do so. So it's, it sounds like like if you want to build an industry-specific solution, just 
identify some repeatable patterns, repeatable tasks that happen in this in this realm, like like what you define defined with um, data engineering, for instance, with labeling and tagging, and um, I don't know, write the right prompts to automate that and offer that as a solution, as a way like, hey, instead of having to do this yourself. Yeah, we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of. Uh, I, actually, I, I'm seeing a lot of these uh, vertical companies and how do you automate and use Gen AI for uh, market research to sales outbound that an SDR would do uh, to the entire sales process to um, monitoring and auditing of the sales pipeline itself to your customer health. And so we're, we're seeing a bunch of, if you just reverse the customer life cycle and the roles that are associated with it, I think we're seeing a lot of these vertical solutions starting to emerge uh, across that. And those are the common repeatable patterns that every, at least enterprise business. Has. And so I think we'll see the same thing start to emerge around data science to analytics, to data engineering as well. Sasha, how are you? I'm curious, besides MidJourney, because I know you use MidJourney, I do too, but how are you using Gen AI in your work? You're, you're you know, you're doing lots of ML work with customers, maybe stuff on the side as well. Yeah, so I do a lot on, on the side because I, I try a lot, I experiment a lot. I have a bunch of websites fully automatically running on generative AI. So I have a website which creates recipes and a web website which um, writes about um, phishing. So it's just just stuff I try out to to um, see how, how well things work and how you can put things together. Um, but yeah, on, on, on a daily work basis on my side, I, I write a lot of articles and I use it to uh, proofreading. So I just place my content there and similar like Grammarly, but just I nowadays use ChatGPT, paste it there and get some nice recommendations and suggestions there. Well, I'm wondering, so Sean, you, you, you already hinted kind of at how Ascend is looking to implement Gen AI today. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective in the future, what is the data pipeline automation system of the future look like? How do we get there? What's needed? Um, maybe, you know, two years from now, what are, what are we going to see that without sharing, uh, without sharing your roadmap? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think the, we've been spending a lot of time to, to be honest, thinking about this right now. Uh, I think the, the data engineering space in, in general is it, it, in this interesting turning point. Um, uh, there's a longer conversation as to, you know, we had this hyper overfunded space for the last three, four years, which means you have a ton of companies. Like there were so many freaking companies all over the landscape. You can't even fit them on a, a slide anymore about the, the market landscape. Uh, and, and there's a lot of, I think a, a lot of predictions around the consolidation of the space, which very much makes sense. Uh, and the reason why I think that that is so important, especially for the, the, the automated future for data pipelines and data engineering is you can't automate anything unless there's shared metadata. If all of these things are operating in complete isolation from each other, it's really hard to then automate the handoff from one system to the next system to, to the next system. I think this is why technologies like Kubernetes in the container orchestration space and more in the infrastructure space have been so wildly successful is in short, they created an entire metadata and automation layer. All of these other really advanced capabilities can plug into as different modules in essence. And the value of that is that they all are still connecting to that same system, a metadata bus, if you will, 
And we don't have that today in the data engineering landscape. Today it is a, I have a data transformation tool and a data orchestration tool and some injection tools and observability tools. And if those things are ever gonna talk to each other, it's because somebody took the time to try and connect them and, and loosely connect some metadata between those. But it is, it, it's hodgepodge at best. And so I think that's the, you can't really get into this whole really advanced Gen AI world if there's just no actual common metadata. So I don't want to say metadata. Yeah, you know, I don't want to say like a metadata platform because that's always been this classic like cataloggy thing of I, I, I just need to store data versus like a, a metadata bus is I need an active system that is actively collecting metadata that is actively has all these other elements contributing and consuming that metadata. That I think is the the, the fundamental difference is the, the, the sheer active nature of, of this metadata and automation problem. I think you see this happening also in the in the space of uh, understanding cloud costs. Google announced a FinOps initiative, right, Sam? And there's there's kind of multiple attempts. There's more there's more than one attempt in the in the FinOps space to try to um, the race to be the de facto like standard. Uh, what, what do you even what do you even call it, Sam? The standard. Yeah, I mean, uh, the biggest one. The biggest one at the moment is they're trying to normalize all the data to a single um, format so that everybody uses the same columns, the same names, the same descriptions. So that uh, you know, all the all the third parties, all the customers out there that are multi-cloud, can then take advantage of, of some sort of normalization. And and it's a, it's I mean it's it's a story as old as time, isn't it? Going back to things like medical research and everything else. If if companies would share, then things would move a lot faster. Um, but if companies would share, then maybe they're not going to make as much money. So they have to balance these um, these requirements for progress versus. Um, versus their own profits and, and, and bottom lines, right? Um, I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I, I love the open source community and all that stuff, um, but capitalism's alive and well, so we'll see how we go. <laughs> um, let's see, Any is there, Sean, Sasha, is there anything that we haven't touched upon yet before before we sign off that I'd like to call out in terms of, uh, in terms of this topic, I guess, Gen AI, data engineering, anything? Interesting. I, I had a, a, a question for Sasha because you're spending a lot of time with customers on this too, and, and you know we hear bits and pieces of this. But um, what are you hearing from clients right now around data sensitivity? Because right now, they're, like this is one of the things that came up in our uh, exec uh, group on that was this whole pullback of like, whoa, 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 like I'm going to be sending a bunch of data into you know everybody's mental model right now is ChatGPT. So th their notion is like, so I'm going to have a bunch of people just uploading a bunch of my shit to chat GPT and it's going to like, it's going to learn on it and we might lose trade secrets. But what do you, what do you see outside of, you know, the intern uploading a bunch of, you know, proprietary things to chat GPT? What are people actually doing and how are they tackling the data sensitivity problems with uh, Gen AI? Yeah, data sensitivity is indeed a big topic. And yeah, it all started because of chat GPT of AI, how they or they handle the data, they initially used it for, for they still use it for, for retraining and fine-tuning their models. So everything to use then to open AI via ChatGPT at least, um, it's still used for training and they can get access to your data. That's a, a big issue for a lot of companies because usually you work on some kind of sensitive data, even if it's your, even if it's only your internal company data, that's probably still sensitive. So that's where AWS and Google usually come into place, at least now, where, since they also offer their large language mo model offering, because they 
promise you they, they have it in their terms, they have it in their, their contracts that they're not using your data to fine-tune their models, they're not using your data to, to do anything with it. It's like any kind of data you have on the cloud. And um, it's your data, it's it's usually secured on the cloud, and they are now doing the same like 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 the data like in your database. It's the same with flash language models if you have it on Google or AWS. So this is I think the big difference um how initially OpenAI approached this and how the cloud cloud provider approaches. One one interesting point on that one, I'm not sure if it's still an issue, but there used to be a separate opt-out for AWS if you didn't want your at least usage patterns used by them to see how we're using the AI and ML services. There's actually a separate, and you, know, you need to like create an external support ticket or something. You can't, there's no, there's no way to just do it in the console to click the, or it used to be, it probably is now. Um, but I remember a while back, everybody had this same concern. Um, yeah, no, I've just done a quick Google. It is now possible just to do it via an API call. But uh, yeah, you, you had to manually opt out of the AI and, uh, and ML analytics Data, data privacy should be always opt-in if you, if you want Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And this wasn't, just to make this very clear, this wasn't um, AWS accessing mm -hmm. your actual data. It was more about the way you were using the AI. So Perhaps. so the prompts maybe, but certainly not your whatever data you've uploaded. There was back then a couple, a couple of years ago a different offering on the Google side where you actually got a reduced pricing, also where you got a better pricing if you actually share your data with Google. So that that was actually quite good it's because if you have if you have data you are able to share you can save money and you can help Google optimizing the models. Yeah, nice. There you go. That's capitalism taking hold on the the data sharing piece too. <laughs> there you go. Nice, exactly. <laughs> and so if, if and so the customers are fine once once the cloud providers are saying don't worry, go through us and uh, we're not we're not reading anything we're not we're not saving or looking into anything. Usually alleviates. Yeah, yeah, they now have it in their terms of contracts. After, after Google Next, they decided they put it into terms of contract, uh, terms of service, and now it's it's in a written form. You can give it to your lawyer and your company, and then all are happy. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, that answers your question, Sean. Yeah, it does. Uh, which is in line with what I was anticipating. Well, we would see more too. Is uh, which is great because I think then that actually accelerates the adoption. It was, I think a lot of CIOs and CDOs were, were just sitting back waiting for, somebody's got to promise you're not going to use my data to somebody else's benefit. Yeah, because they've all they've all read enough stories of exactly what you mentioned, where the interns uploaded something secret, and then they've seen that appearing in someone else's recommendations, right? So. Yep, exactly. Oh boy. Um, anything else? Uh, you know, we've had a pretty pretty good discussion just wanted to make sure we touch upon everything before we sign off here but i learned a bunch already sasha sean i i, th I think the, the biggest win for us all for all the companies on this planet is actually companies like OpenAI, aws um, and google who actually be able to train those large language models which costs millions of dollars it's no small company like like we are we, would we never be able to put this amount of money and effort into those models. And we wouldn't be here where we are today without those large companies. Capitalism, baby. Yeah. Yes. Those, those large companies, you could also argue, are sponsoring the uh, SAG-AFTRA strike at the minute with all the writers going out on strike. So let's, <laughs> let's not go into that. And maybe you need to cut that, Chris, from, but anyway. <laughs> well, the strike might be over, but I heard, I heard they're coming to a resolution soon. With, with yeah, with that so stuff. I, I've actually, so I, I don't know if you guys follow any of the late night shows in the US, but um, 
there's a few other late night hosts have come together to do their own podcast. We shouldn't be advertising Strike Force Five as the yeah. competition or anything, but um, like Jimmy Fallon and and Jimmy Kimmel and Stephen Colbert and all that coming together, and they keep talking about what AI can do, and they keep using it on their podcast to like fake someone else's voice or something like this. So they'll be doing uh, Ryan Reynolds because he's one of the advertisers there, and and sort of halfway through, you can hear that you can almost hear the cog clicking in their head going. This is exactly what the strike's against. We shouldn't be supporting this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe All it's right. an advanced negotiating tactic. Uh, indeed. indeed. They're going very meta with that. Yeah. Although I don't think they can create good, good I don't know if they can create good uh, good movies, but I don't know. Some of this stuff is also for like the lowest common de- denominator content. Like, it's it's I've the ability, right? I mean, yeah. if you if you look at um if you go onto Netflix or Amazon Video or something like that, and you look at the list of um Christmas rom coms, right? Left. They all follow the exact same pattern, right? So you could probably get a, a a script equally similarly good out of ChatGPT. Try and write a Seinfeld episode with you know some more intricate and multi layered jokes and stuff like that. You're gonna struggle, but some some basic stuff. And I have yeah, tried the rom com episode. The movie, really... the, I mean, all the rom coms, even before ChatGPT and, and AI, were were using the same movie poster concept, where it's the guy and, and the girl leaning against each other like this. Like yeah. they can't stand each other, but or here they are. Were, yeah, it was face to face or back to back, you know, to, and that told yeah. you the story whether they were going to have a fight or not. <laughs> Standing with every lifetime Christmas movie, red and green. There you go. Same yeah. same movie posters, but anyways, Sean, Sasha, thanks for joining. I think we're we're ready to wrap this up. Um, pleasure talking and learning from both of you guys. And uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff with Ascend lately, so I don't think this will be the last. We we had we had John on on Friday um, to talk about data um, data pipeline transgressions. I think that's what it was. Not cool. Things that are costing you money with your data pipelines that you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> um, so I'm sure we'll collaborate more. But uh, for those who are listening, uh, hope you learned something new. Stay tuned for the next episode. I don't think it's data engineering related. I think it's Kubernetes, but you'll see on the list. We're still here and haven't been replaced by ChatGPT. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Not yet. Not yet. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See ya. (laughs) And we're done. Cloud Masters is a Doit multimedia production hosted by Matan Bordo, a product marketing manager at Doit, and Sam Clark, a technical account manager at Doit. Our guests this week were Sean Knapp, founder and CEO of Ascend.io, and Sasha Hare, a senior cloud architect to do it. Editing and production of Cloud Masters is handled by me, Crispin Stanback. To hear more episodes of Cloud Masters and learn more about Do It, visit doit.com.